0: Welcome to the Value Perspective podcast on decision-making. We're a group of value investors working together on the global value team here at
1: Schroder's. As investors, we have to tackle decision-making in uncertain environments every day. In this podcast series, we speak to people from other walks of life who also share the challenge of making decisions in complex and uncertain
0: environments. We cover topics such as how to think in probabilities, tools for overcoming psychological biases and how we can learn and improve decision-making
1: in complex environments. We hope you enjoy it. This podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation or recommendation of any of the funds, services or products before to adopt any investment strategy.
0: Before we start with today's episode, Juan and
1: Oswath are going to discuss two concepts, which you may not be familiar with. So we like to give you some quick definitions to help out. They'll talk about debt ratio for a bit, which is a financial ratio that measures the extent of a company's leverage and it can be basically interpreted as the proportion of a company's assets that are financed by debt. Secondly, Juan will reference Monte Carlo simulations that was used in his past life as an investment baker. A Monte Carlo simulation is used to model the probability of different outcomes in a process that can't be easily predicted due to a lot of random variables. Is this technique used to understand the impact of risk and uncertainty in prediction and forecasting models? Now, on with the episode.
0: In today's episode, we have Professor Aswath Damodaran. He's a professor of finance at the Stern School of Business at New York University, where he teaches corporate finance and equity valuation. An eminence in the world of academic finance, Professor DeModeran is sometimes referred to as the Dean of Valuation, given his expertise on the subject. He is the author of several books, including Valuation and Narrative and Numbers, The Value of Stories in Business. He's also the author behind the well-known blog, Musical on Markets. In today's episode, we cover topics around how to best avoid taking shortcuts in valuations, Data Management to Make Better Decisions, Valuation as a Craft, Use of Probabilities, and the Power of Narrative. We hope you enjoy it. Um, professor, thank you very much for your time and for joining us in the Value Perspective. Our podcast is such an honor to have you here. Um, maybe for those that might not know who you are and, and in the world of finance, I don't think that there are that many. Maybe uh, is, would it be possible for you to give a little bit of background on yourself and yeah. how you came to um, teach evaluation and write so many of the books that are the, the, the driving course for many people in the industry?
1: I'll give you my informal bio. I mean, I, 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 came, I grew up in India. I got my, uh, my undergraduate degree in India, master's in India that came out to the US to get an MBA and PhD at UCLA. It was 1984 when I graduated with my PhD. I spent a couple of years teaching at UC Berkeley before uh, coming to New York in 1986. I came to NYU in 1986, and I tell a story which, um, which kind of is is the, is the lead-in to why I teach what I teach right now. Which is, uh, when I came to NYU, I was given a class to teach. It was called security analysis. It's a class that Ben Graham taught at Columbia in the 1950s that no Warren Buffett taught. And they gave me the class and I took one look and said, I don't want to teach this class, most boring class ever, because by 1986 it was a collection of topics. There's almost nothing on valuation. There was like one session where you did the stable growth dividend discount model. It's like Ben Graham's security analysis still being taught in 1986. So I went to the head of my department and I said, you know what, I'd like to teach a valuation class. And he said, don't do it. And he said, there isn't enough stuff in valuation to actually fill a class. And you know what, he was absolutely right. There wasn't enough stuff in valuation. There were no books on valuation, unless you wanted to go back to Ben Graham's security analysis which was written in 1934. And uh, there were no real papers and research on valuation. Data is very difficult to get on valuation. But I really wanted to teach this class. And I learned very early in my academic life that if you want to get something done, the best way to do it is to do it subversively. So I said, I'll teach a security analysis class. And I walked in and taught a valuation class. That was the fall of 1986. This this year, I'm teaching valuation to two sessions and it'll be my 58th and 59th semester teaching valuation. And I tell people something about this class that's gonna encapsulate how I think about valuation. Everything I know about valuation, I've learned in the course of teaching this class. Everything I've gone through has been a learning experience. Whether it was the 1987 flash crash, where on October 19th of 1987, stocks dropped 22%. The S&P 500 dropped 22% in one day. The 1990s with the dot-com boom was a learning experience about how to value. I, everything I know about valuing young companies I learned in the process of valuing Amazon. which is an online book retailer in 1997. I learned about how banks going under can affect every company through the 2008 crisis. And I learned how to value users and subscribers and platforms because of all those companies that went public in the last decade. I didn't come into teaching valuation fully formed with all the views I have. And that's something to remember about valuation. It's a craft, you keep working at it. So the first, it's like cooking. The first time you cook, you you cook the only thing you know, which might be X. (laughs) But as you cook, you expand your arsenal. But if you say, look, I'm a really good egg cooker and that's all I'll keep cooking, you get really good at cooking eggs, but that's it. Valuation, you got to keep the door open. You're never going to master this. You just keep working at your craft. And if you ask me to describe myself, that's what I do. I I work at my craft. I enjoy valuation. I'm not an expert. I'm not a researcher. I don't write for academic journals i basically do valuation because i'm interested in it i and, and i keep learning new things every time i value a company now and as i've done this I, if you ask me to describe myself as a person i'm a teacher that's what that's my that's my fourth you know at the forefront of all my descriptions everything else i do is secondary to it i don't consult i don't you know i don't work or sit on boards i don't do any of the stuff that is potentially easier money, but because I don't enjoy it. I teach. And since I'm teaching something that's always in the moment, valuation is never boring. That's the one thing about valuation. There's always something going on <laughs> that you don't understand that you have to try to get your hands around. It's like waking up to new lab experiment every day. Says so stopped three weeks ago, zoomed up and zoomed down. There's a learning experience about, hey, what is it that drives price and why is price different from value? So it's not a conventional bio, but that's the way I think of it. I'm a teacher, I've learned in the process of teaching, I teach valuation and corporate finance. That's the other top, the the two big courses I teach. And the difference between the two is in corporate finance, you look at value from the inside out as a manager. What can I do to change the value? In valuation, you look at the same company from the outside in. Mm -hmm. It kind of teaches humility as an investor, not to change things that you shouldn't be messing with. So when I see an analyst Valuing a company, working at a mutual fund valuing a company, changing the debt ratio to target debt ratio. Question I ask is who do you think you are? Yeah. <laughs> no? What makes you think you can change the debt ratio? It's something that 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 because I teach both classes, I have to recognize where the line stops as a passive investor mm-hmm. and where the line begins as a manager. So hopefully that's enough of an intro for me. So I, I am, yeah. I, I, as I said, valuation covers pretty much everything in business and finance, so we, we can roam wherever we want to roam.
0: That's that's really interesting. Thank you very much for that. Um, I guess this is a question that you get asked a lot, but is there a way to enforce discipline when doing valuations in a way that will limit or even better stop people from taking shortcuts while valuing a company? And um, maybe a checklist, or I know that in the past you've developed some app tools that maybe um, maybe those could work as a way to cross-check that your numbers are sensible? I think there are two things. One is, you know, you can't check a
1: valuation for correctness. Why? Because we don't know what the future will bring. The future is going to bring its own surprises. Valuations are going to be wrong 100% of the time. So it'd be hubris on my part to look at your valuation, say your valuation is wrong. But here's what I can do. I can look at your valuation and check for what I call internal consistency. In other words, I can tell you whether you're at war with yourself. Not with me, but with yourself. And I'll give you a simple example. Let's suppose you sit down to value a company, you put in a high growth rate. Why? Because you like the company, like the market. You also give it high margins, margins increasing over time. So, okay, usually when you want to grow your revenues, you got to sell more. But in this case, not only are you selling more, you're raising prices as you do. So I'm going to push back and say, well, what kind of competition do you face? Are you the sole player where you have complete pricing power? And if you haven't even thought about that answer, I'm going to say, well, I don't know whether I can buy into this story because you've told me a story, but I haven't checked the competition. Is this a market where companies have pricing power? And then I get beyond your growth and margins if you tell me a convincing story and I look at what you're. Setting aside to create the growth. Growth is not magical. It doesn't happen on its own. Now, the way you shorten evaluation, you might have line item out of line item, capex, depreciation, working capital, acquisition. But the net effect is it's taking away from earnings and reducing your cash flows. It's reinvestment. I'm gonna look at that collective reinvestment and say, You told me a story about high growth, but I'm looking at your reinvestment and it doesn't look like you're reinvesting any money. Hmm. Tell me again what this company has done. And maybe you have a convincing story. It's an infrastructure company. It's already invested in the infrastructure. Therefore, it doesn't need fresh reinvestment. But there, if you don't have an answer, I'm gonna say maybe you need to think about the fact that your story is a growth story, but your reinvestment reflects a very different company. If you have a multiple personality company wandering through your valuation, in other words, it's a growth company in your revenues, it's a company with no competition in its margins. It's a company which doesn't reinvest money, it behaves like a mature company in the reinvestment. And you have to make up your mind. Which of these three personalities do you want to latch yourself onto and make a valuation that's consistent? So I think that checking for consistency is very simple. You can build into any spreadsheet you have. And I would impose one on you, but if whatever spreadsheet you use, I just run a simple worksheet of what am I assuming about growth? What am I assuming about margins? What am I assuming about reinvestment in one page? And it just jumps out at me and so, says, look, you know, those numbers don't go together. I need to revisit those numbers. Which brings me to my second point. Your biggest enemy in valuation looks at you in the mirror every morning when you get up and brush your teeth and The biggest problems in valuation are not mechanical. They're human. Yeah. And in fact, I call this the Bermuda Triangle of valuation. There are the three biggest dangers to valuation. The first is bias and preconceptions. When you sit down to value a company, you bring your preconceptions in. The stronger those preconceptions and biases are, the less point there is to doing valuation. So if you brought me in front of an MA banking analyst team at investment banks that teach them valuation, I'm going to tell you it's pointless. The problem here is not that they don't know how to value companies, there's too much bias in the process. Why? Because you make money as a banker from deals going through. And for deals to go through, your value has to be high. So you already start with that, hey, I have to end up with a high value, otherwise I don't get paid. I can teach you everything there is to teach about how to come up with discount rates, how to bring in country risk, how to incorporate cash flows. But it doesn't matter because you're going to find a way to get to that high value.
0: So, but My that's an interesting value. point. So, but how do you, how do you fight against that human bias? You want to do it like prop in the, the proper way. First, don't create processes that
1: add to the bias. The biggest problem in the M&A process is the deal maker is the deal analyst. You got a conflict of interest right there. Hmm. That's not pre written. Why does the investment banker who actually does my deal, why is that investment banker being asked, does this deal make sense? In fact, I say this facetiously in my class asking a banker, an MA banker, whether a deal makes sense is like asking a plastic surgeon whether there's something wrong with your face. <laughs> what kind of answer are you going to get? <laughs> so, first, we need to separate deal analysis. From deal making. The appraiser who tells me whether a deal makes sense can make no money on the deal because then I've loaded up the dice. So first we need to take the process out. In an, in equity research, I tell people subtle things you do create bias. You're a portfolio manager, you call in your buy side analyst and you give them a mission. You say, Look, I you know I want you to value this company. And then as a throwaway, you say, well, you know what, we happen to own a million shares in this company. You might not mean for that to create bias. But it is going to create bias because he knows or she knows what will make you happy. Coming back and telling you this is a great company, you should continue to hold it and whether you like it. So I tell people be careful, subtle messages you send, things you say that you don't even realize you're saying can create bias. So if you want to minimize bias try to kind of give people as clean a slate as possible. they will still bring their own biases based on their priors. But the only way to expose that is A, for them to be open about their biases and B, for somebody to push back and ask, well, you've assumed this high growth rate. So there's got to be almost a devil's advocate in the room. Somebody who's not just asking mechanical numbers but understands enough about the company that they can push back and say, you're assuming 600 billion dollars in revenues for Tesla in year 10 The largest automobile company in the world Volkswagen is 300 billion in revenues. Where's the extra 300 billion coming from? Hmm. And if they say software, you know that they haven't thought through this. The largest software company in the world, Microsoft makes 130 billion in revenues. you don't make 300 billion dollars in revenues in software. But sometimes Mm -hmm. just putting people on the spot and saying, and focus on the year 10 numbers. Don't ask about year one. Year one's too easy, right? Because then they can say, (laughs) well, this is what they did. Focus on the year 10 numbers and say, you created this magical company in year 10 with 600 billion in revenues, 20% margins and a return on capital of 50%. Tell me about that company. What's got to be true about the world for Tesla? Do you know what's imputed in Tesla's market cap now? is almost $750 billion in revenues, which would make them two and a half times, it'll make them the largest company in the world in terms of revenues, two and a half times larger than Volkswagen, the largest auto company. Margins of about 20% should make them like Microsoft, like software margins. So even Mm -hmm. if your story is about they're selling software, almost all of the revenues have to come from software like products. Your Tesla has got to be primarily software. And very little reinvestment. They're managing to produce what 4 million cars with very little assembly plant. How is that happening? Mm -hmm. And so I think that's when you start thinking about where is the story going? What kind of story would I need to justify it? And if you're a good analyst, you've thought through those stories. And I think that's why it's good to have meetings where people put out their ideas and then other people don't push back on mechanics because that's the wrong fight but they push back on the story and the
0: story's connection to the numbers. Professor, this is a podcast about getting better in decision-making, in part to become better investors, but also to help us make better decisions in life, in general. In your book, Narrative and Numbers, you make the point that data is central to making good decisions, but not just data, but good data management. Can you please walk us through what that means and also the risk of not managing data sets correctly, especially when it comes to valuing a business and in the context of investing? Data keeps us disciplined,
1: right? Because without data, we tell fairy tales. So that's the thing, the example I gave of Tesla. The reason I was able to push back on the Tesla valuation is I know what the revenues of a Volkswagen look like. And I don't know that instinctively, I had to look it up. It didn't take a lot of time. The advantage we have today is nobody has the excuse of saying that's too much work. It took me all of one and a half minutes on capital IQ to download the revenues of the top 25 automobile companies. So getting data is easy, but here's the downside of having so much data. If you don't know what you're looking for, you're going to drown in data. I call this the Google search problem. Mm -hmm. Google search, if you go in and type the name of a company and say, I'm going to find out more about the company, I promise you, you're going to enter a nightmare because you're going to get 67,000 hits on your company and you're gonna get big stories, small stories, non-stories, rumors, um, uh, tweets, all kinds of crap about your company. So I tell people before you look at the data, have focus. You need to know what you're looking for before you go looking for it. So I take people through a reading of a 10K, for instance. Mm-hmm. I'll give it to say, give you, <coughs> or a prospectus. To give you some perspective, a typical prospectus now is 300 pages. Mm-hmm. A typical 10K can be 200 pages. You start on page one and you work all the way through page 300, you're lost completely because it's all kinds of stuff coming at you. Some useful, some not. So I actually take people through a prospectus where I say, here are the things I need to know. I need to know about your growth. I need to know about your profitability. I need to know about your business model to answer the first two. And then know how you create growth. What do you invest in to create growth? Those are the questions I need to answer. Now I'm gonna go looking at the 10K with each of the questions. So for growth, rather than look at the entire 10K, I'm looking at where are the parts of the 10K. Obviously, when I look at the financial statements and I look at the revenues and I look at revenues over the last four years, I'm getting a measure of whatever growth story is there and what you've actually grown at. So that's a number. I will also look at the footnotes and where you're getting the revenues. Maybe you're growing in India, not in the US. Why does it matter? Maybe take Netflix the growth in users for Netflix in the last year or two has come primarily from India. you think so what? Well, Indian subscribers are given, given this option of watching Netflix for $3 a month on their phones. And that actually makes a difference because when Netflix says the number of subscribers has gone from 150 million to 165 million, market celebrate, right? 10% growth in subscribers. But what Netflix is forgetting to mention is those 15 million subscribers are not paying 20, $15 a month like in the US or $12 a month like in Europe, they're paying $3 a month. Mm -hmm. That's data, but that's data that is there, but it can get lost because you're just reading it from page one to 300, you just skip over those spots. So my suggestion with data is have focus, have focus, know what you're looking for, knowing what to throw away is actually more important than knowing what to look for because you know, out of the 300 pages of a 10K, I use probably 12 to 15 pages to be quite honest. And after a while, I'll tell you entire sections of 10K that are completely useless that you might as well skip, skip over. Like what? That entire section on risk in every 10K, with like 30 pages of this could happen. This could, it's written by lawyers, for lawyers. Obviously it's written to make sure that they never get sued but I've never read a risk section in either prospectors or a 10K that's ever helped me.
0: No, because it really helped me
1: nothing. It says the competition could get stronger, our margins could get lower. Thank you for letting me know. I would never have thought of that on my own. But there are entire, mm-hmm. so I think people assume that just, you know, the, the, the words I used to describe is don't mistake data for information. What we're looking for is information. We have to wade through a lot of data to find that information. And that's basically what you will learn. And that's what I mean by a craft is you don't learn it by my talking about it. You learn it as you value companies, you learn that these are the parts that seem to matter. The next time I read a 10K, I'm going to go to those parts first. In like fact, somebody actually talked to me once about uh, using you know, automating this, where they said, if we keep if we can watch you read. 10Ks over and over again, we learn what you're looking at, we can actually then automate that and give it to you as an app where you hit the app, it goes to those sections of the 10K. But I don't need an app, I can do that on my own, but you can think of doing that over time, train yourself to figure out where you get information and what the distractions are. Because you'll have a lot of shiny baubles distracting you, saying, look at me, look at me. And if you look at them, you're gonna get lost very quickly. Could
0: would be the case that, um... In 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 general, in the in the in the um, it, for many companies, it's the case that a section like risks in the 10K doesn't is not going to tell you something. But then there's this one company where there there might be this one bullet point where actually there's a, a meaningful risk in in a in a in the in the form of a contingent maybe that it's not that pronounced that you should be right. careful that could drive your valuation down.
1: Yeah, I think that's true. There is this risk that if you're too sloppy, you could miss something significant. But usually when it's something like that, it's usually in the footnotes. And I do read the footnotes. I browse through the footnotes because often things like contingent liabilities will not show up at the risk section. It'll show up as a footnote, which is, oh, by the way, we forgot to mention we have these purchase commitments for the next five years, which are 12 billion, where we have no way of backing out of these commitments. No and i think one of the problems with the accounting disclosure requirements is i, I you know i keep telling accountants this and they keep refusing to listen to me is less is more because they think the answer to everything is disclosure just disclose it just disclose it add more stuff now that's one reason i'm cynical on this esg disclosure stuff that's coming out i guarantee it's going to add 50 pages to every 10k on carbon emissions and this and you know and the problem is it's 50 pages it's not Two pages. I would much rather have a more focused disclosure of what your ESG risks are than this fifty-page novel on this could be this could be there this could be there. You're mixing the big stuff with the small stuff in the process. You're actually making it less likely that'll even read any of that stuff. So I do read the foot. I do browse the footnotes, but that doesn't take time. The big time is actually that narrative that management has devised for the first hundred and fifty pages. Because you don't actually get to the financial statements till almost page 200 of a 300-page 10K, or even page 240. And almost everything you need will be in those last 60 pages. And I think that if you do find something or question, sometimes I will go back to the first pages looking. And that's a nice thing about having a PDF version that I like. It's going to do a search. Yeah. I can do a search of the page, whereas in the old days, I used to actually have to leaf through page after page. So if I find <laughs> a mention of some special management option agreement, like on Tesla giving, telling Elon Musk, you get 10 million shares if the stock price hits something, and I read that in the footnotes, and I'm when I'm worried about it, I'll go back and look for it in the earlier section, see if there's something else I've mentioned.
0: Um, that's, that's very interesting, and actually, um, continuing with the, with the topic of uh, narratives. Um, valuation is core to the investment process, yet at different points in history and today in some parts of the market, one can hear people saying that valuations do not matter. And this is actually that probably we have seen many times before throughout many different um, cycles. And, and, and so this is something that keeps kind of repeating itself in history. So why, why do you think this happens? And why do you think that we haven't been able to, as investors, human beings, uh, participants in the market, to learn from the mistakes of other generations and this just keeps happening? Is this, is that, is this the power of narrative in action? Is this like its dark side? Well, I think it is a sense, first, where most of us are
1: not investors, we're traders. And for a trader, it's always true. Valuations don't matter. Trading is about buying low, selling high. It's about mood and momentum. And they're absolutely right. You can get very rich being a trader, right? I mean, if you hit the market at the right time and you leave the market at the right time. So this is not new, it's always been the case. But for a market to be healthy, you need both investors and traders. Now much as investors look at trade, look down on traders and view them as short term. And let's face it, without traders, investors would have a really tough time. There'd be no liquidity in the market. And without investors, traders very quickly get lost. There'd be no magnet drawing it in. So the way I think about markets is these groups ebb and flow. There are times when investors are too many in number and there aren't enough traders. These are markets where the trading dries up, often bear markets, you know, everything is undervalued, but there's, remember as an as, as an investor, you want the price to adjust value. And without the traders in there, you don't get that correction that'll give you the returns. And then you look at other yeah. times where the traders have taken over and the investors are on the sidelines. They're saying, I can't explain that. I can't explain that. Everything looks overvalued to me. And I don't think either end game is healthy, but markets self-correct. And what reaches self-correction is trading at some point in time in you know, trader's view is if I perceive it to be worth a thousand, what difference does it make what the earnings and the cash flows are? Now that reasoning works if you have a Picasso. A Picasso is all perception. There's no underlying cash flows. So we could keep bidding up Picasso's as long as there's somebody wealthier enough to be willing to pay the higher price. What if the company? There are earnings and cash flows. We, you and I can convince ourselves that Tesla is worth a trillion dollars. But if they can't sell the cars and they can't get revenues even close to 200 billion, let alone 600 billion, the truth eventually comes out. Which effectively means at that point in time, you don't even need investors. The traders themselves will wake up and say, "Oh my God!" The same mood that pushed the price up will push the price down. Look at how quickly GameStop got pushed up and got pushed down. The mood shifted essentially, like watching a manic depressive in action. So I think that um, that ultimately, I, I don't get frustrated by this. I find a lot of investors get frustrated when traders have taken over the market, and Bitcoin is up at fifty thousand, Tesla is up at nine hundred. You say, what the heck do I do? People have gone crazy. It's not your problem. You invest based on the cash flows. What does it matter to you that other people, it's, I think part of this is this envy, which is other people are making money so easily. I am working so hard. I deserve to make the money. They don't. And that is at the root of a lot of problems in value investing is people get Righteous, and then they double down. I've seen it happen for the last 10 years. Value investors getting mad at the rest of the market because it's rewarding all these shallow traders and it's not rewarding them for doing the work. And they say, that's a recipe for disaster, no. So if you don't want to buy Bitcoin at 50,000, don't buy Bitcoin at 50,000. You don't want to buy Tesla at 900, don't buy Tesla at 900. Don't sit there pointing your finger at those people. That's a bubble. Those people are crazy. It's not your money. If you can find something else in the market, that is a fair value for you. Go out and buy it. But it's not your job to go around wagging your finger at other people saying you shouldn't be doing that. That's too much. You're in a bubble. You're a speculator. It's not your money. Let them do what they want to with
0: their money and let the game play out. It's interesting. I in one of the emails that we exchanged, I mentioned uh, a piece by Morgan Morgan Housel that yeah. he wrote very recently called uh, "Best mm-hmm. Story Wins." I don't know if you if you read it. Yeah, I read
1: it. Yeah, Morgan's a great. Uh, in fact, his, I li- I I really like his uh, his, uh, his newest his new book. It's a great way to think about the philosophical foundations of what exactly you're trying to do as an investor.
0: The were the, the, the word uh, to, to um. Uh, small paragraphs that caught my attention. I'm just going to uh, read them out loud. Because right. uh, he was saying, a truth that applies to many fields, which can frustrate some as much as it energizes others, is that the person who tells the most compelling story wins. Not who has the best idea or the right answer, just whoever tells a story that catches people's attention and gets gets them to nod their heads. And then um, a little bit farther down, he actually uh, said that John Burr Williams had more profound insight on the topic of valuing companies than Benjamin Graham, but Graham knew how to write a good paragraph, so he became the legend. And and I was wondering if, I mean, you've mentioned in the past that words have consequences and can shape a company's valuation, at least in in the short term because of the words or the narrative that is built around the company, how that company is being described and how description can be the driver to the valuation. Mm -hmm. And, And then is that, is there too much noise in the ecosystem? And and isn't this a way that markets have always worked? I think the truth is markets
1: over time have always had narratives drive prices. And I think the one thing that the last 20 years have brought, and I'm going to borrow another concept from another great mind, George Soros and Reflexivity, where Mm-hmm. You tell a big story. The big story can actually make it easier for you to deliver on the story. I mean, the the reason is very simple: make the story bigger. Your price gets pushed up. You go out and raise equity at that price. You've now got the cash. You can now try to make. So there's all there's a feedback loop here, and mm-hmm. it's something I wrote about in the context of GameStop. Because in the context of GameStop, people said when the stock goes to twenty to four hundred does the company gain anything from that 20 fold increase in the price? So I actually wrote about three effects, but there's a feedback. The first is the perception effect, which mm-hmm. is if you're a who's lend money to GameStop, even if nothing has changed, that 20 fold increase in the price, you lean back and you heave a sigh of relief. Now I'm not gonna put any pressure on them. I feel a little better today than I did yesterday. The second is if you're GameStop going out to hire a new CEO or a new top manager, your life just got a little easier at $400 price than a $20 price, because you can offer them this carrot of, hey, you want no options. Who wants an option in a $10 stock that's dropped 50%? So those are the implicit effects. There's an explicit effect. In the case of AMC, when the stock price went up, because Mm -hmm. people are telling this big story, their convertible debt got converted. So all of a sudden, their debt burden became smaller, their distress went down. So there's a fundamental change in the business. And there's actually a third component. This is where it gets tricky. Now, AMC actually filed with the SEC to issue shares on December 11th. They had incredible foresight. So, when their price went up, they could have issued shares at a higher mm-hmm. price, collected the cash. And in these days where everybody has a SPAC, think of this as AMC with a SPAC, and the SPAC mm-hmm. can be used for them to enter new businesses. So, I make this big deal about price and value being different processes, but I also talk about the feedback loop between price and value. So when you have a really big storyteller and the last 20 years, that's what Silicon Valley has trained founders to go tell a really big story. The way this shows up is a total accessible market you talk about is always trillions, not billions. Because you will say, this is a really big story. Look how big my story is. And then use that story. You don't have to be specific. People will then give you a high price based on the story. Use that high pricing to then make yourself the lead player in that story. And with the networking benefits that come with technology, your story has now led to actual fundamentals that back up that story. And it clearly worked with an Uber. I mean, if you think about the the, getting, it's clearly worked with an Airbnb. So everybody thinks that this is their pathway to success. The only problem is there's only so much room in the world for lots of big stories, right? There's only so much money we collectively as consumers have to spend. And that's that's when the tension kicks in. Is if too many people are telling big stories, we're building what I call the big market delusion. Each story by itself is plausible, but the collection of stories is a fairy tale. There isn't enough market.
0: I guess. I guess the the, the other issue with that is that there is a lot of survival chip bias. In the sense that we all, we tend to remember those yeah. stories and great narratives that actually work through, but no one remembers all of the dot-coms that actually didn't make it through the late 1990s. But, or but that's the- at the end. When you write the end of the story,
1: that's going to be true, but there are going to be points in the story. We have all these collections of implausible, uh, basically these big stories all coexisting. So that's a big market delusion, as I'm saying, that could last a At times. So if you're waiting for that end game to play out as an investor, which is what you're doing when you're selling short on an Uber saying this story sounds too big, you might be right in the end game. But remember the old Keynesian saying if you know we're all dead in the long term. And Mm. some of these stories, by the time that uncertainty gets resolved and you're writing the history, of gaming companies, or AI companies, or uh, ride-sharing companies, you might say these were the two winners, and this is what led them there. But there were five of them at some point in time with market caps that were unsustainable, and it took almost 15 years for DD and you know Grab and Ola and Uber and Lyft to all reach its steady state. So you're right in the long term. The truth wins out. And as an investor, that's a challenge. How long is the long term? When will and the problem is we're hitting these stories so early in the process that the resolution might not be till 25 years from now. This is not like the 1980s, where the public, young public companies you are investing in were not, you know, in chapter one, they were in chapter 12 of a 35-chapter book. Mm-hmm. Microsoft, by the time it got public, had an operating system, was making revenue, was actually generating profits. Apple, by the time it went public, had the first computer out there. Today, we're getting companies go public with a concept and an idea, and, and a bus- I mean, let's face it, Uber doesn't have a business model that works still,
0: mm. they of making
1: true. money. And mm. it's, uh, it's because of that, we're hitting these companies early, and as public investors, it exposes us to a much greater time period before the story
0: resolves. My next question, which is one of the topics that we've been exploring uh, quite often in the podcast is how to think about probabilities and how to best use probabilities uh, in a way that informs your decision-making and, and your investment process. And so um, and, and um, we, we are kind of interested in understanding how do you think of and apply probabilities in the context of balance in a business on or investing in a specific security. And, and in our, in our, actually in our uh, recent session and in your book, you talk about the three-piece framework, which I thought was quite interesting. Maybe you can explain that to us. And how do you go about best estimate this new need to build into, to, I guess, to cross-check how the narrative plays out with the, the, the real life numbers?
1: I, you know, I, I like simple processes. And one of the things I try to, to do is create a framework where I can keep myself honest because I have bias like everybody else. I love companies, I hate companies and those biases feed out. So when I tell a story, I say, look, the best way for me to make sure the story I've told is not a fairy tale is to take it through the 3P test. First test, is it possible? It's a very simple test. I wanna make sure that I've not told you a story where my market share becomes more than a hundred percent or my return on capital becomes 5,000%. So that's a relatively straightforward part. Is it possible? Then I look at, is it plausible? Plausible basically means somebody somewhere has done something like this, right? So basically when I tell a story about, I can do this, I can do this. Oh, by the way, Amazon did something like this in this business. So if it's Airbnb and I talk about expanding the hospitality market, I can point to Uber and say Uber tripled the the car service market, It's plausible. Then comes the toughest test, probability. Now I'm trying to take this and say, how will it play out? So here I want something more specific. Show me a particular, even if it's a market test, that in a particular market, what you were able to charge as a price, what you were able to generate as a margin, Possible, plausible, probable. Now, and I like to use a Latin American example of being in Brazil and asking this question six months before the 2018 World Cup. There were 300 Brazilians in the room. And I said, is it possible? This was six months before a World Cup 2018. Is it possible that Brazil will win the World Cup? And what do you think the answer was? He asked 300 Brazilians six months before a World Cup. Is it possible? I said, of course it is. We won it five times before. I said, is it plausible? And you know what? In 2017, they felt pretty good. But if I'd asked the same question in December of 2014, after the previous World Cup, where Brazil got that shellacking at the hands of Germany, that plausible might have been a little shaky. In 2017, they felt pretty good about it. Then I said, is it probable that Brazil won the World Cup? And then they they looked at, you know, depends on what group we get put at and whether Neymar stays healthy and if this, this and this happens. So with each one, I was upping paying the ante. People had to come up with more thinking. And when I listen to founder stories, my job often is to ask those questions that take the founder from what's possible to what's plausible to what's probable. And you'd be amazed at how many founder stories fail the test as you start to go from possible to plausible. You know, one of the things that I make my students in my valuation class do is watch Shark Tank. It's one of their assignments every week is you have to watch at least... One episode of Shark Tank, and with every person who comes and pitches, you, you've seen Shark Tank, right? People pitch business ideas. Yeah, I'm familiar with it, yeah. yeah. So you have to pick at least one one of those stories and take it through this process. So I, I, it's something that that makes them more disciplined in terms of you know what are the questions I need to ask for a story to make sense. No, yeah. and that's all you can do is ask those and. To make it more explicit, and you've probably seen this in my books or in my blogs, when I value a company, I actually try to get explicit about what I'm uncertain about. Revenue growth, oh, here's how uncertain I am, margins, here's how uncertain I am, putting in a distribution instead of a single number. Because what that allows me to do that is run a Monte Carlo simulation. Sounds fancy, but basically it's more real. It allows for the fact that you don't control the world, that things can change and it'll play out as different values. It forces you to confront
0: your own uncertainties and make them explicit. So that's really interesting. When I was uh, working back in uh, corporate finance, IBD, about 10 years ago, I used to have this managing director that used to say that Monte Carlo simulations were not supposed to be used in every single valuation exercise for every single industry. You seem to use Monte Carlo simulations quite often to cross-check your numbers or or that's part of your valuation process. Do you think that, that a statement is correct, the fact that you shouldn't be using it? Does it work better for some industries and sectors rather than others? What
1: do you think about it? I think the key is when you do Monte Carlo simulation, you've got to put distributions on your assumption. To get distributions, you need data. Mm. And that's easier in some business. So if you gave me an oil company to value, Monte Carlo simulations are very easy to do. Why? Because the prime variable that you're uncertain about is the oil price. And the oil price is traded. So I can give you past prices. Getting a distribution is almost trivial there. It's already out there. In contrast, if you try a Monte Carlo simulation on a software company and you're uncertain about margins, there's no distribution, a market traded distribution. I can give you the margins of different software companies, but you're trying to convert that into a distribution. So it's not that it's less applicable, but getting the data you need to put in the distributions for the variables that matter is more difficult in some businesses than others. But I just think that that's just a continuum. In some businesses, I think Monte Carlo simulations have more basis because you have more basis for the distributions. In others, it's more difficult.
0: Professor, we're coming to an entire session and we always ask our guests two questions um, towards the end. The first is, can you please give us an example of a decision that ended in a bad outcome because of bad process rather than bad luck?
1: I'll make it about an investment. Might as well be open about mistakes. I remember uh, buying Vale in 2013. You know, and I bought it because I called it my three, I called it my three C bet, which is I said, it was right at a time when the country was melting down. Brazil was starting to get into a political scandal. Uh, the commodity iron ore had dropped in price because China had pulled out of the market. So, the, So the country was in trouble, the commodity was in trouble and the currency was in free fall, three hours dropping. So I valued Vale and I came up with the value, I don't know, $14 per share and the stock was trading at nine and I bought the shares at nine saying, I'm making a bet that since things are so bad, you're going to get a recovery on at least one of those dimensions, of the markets. And I assumed that Vale's current earnings already reflected the fact that iron ore prices had dropped dramatically. I said, it's already in there. So you know, it's all upside there. I sold the stock a year and a half later for $5 per share. And I wrote, I still remember the, the title of the post. I said, no mas, no mas. <laughs> I give up. And I basically, I went through what I missed. And you know what I missed? I missed the fact that in commodity companies, it takes about two years for a drop in commodity prices to actually find their way into earnings because many of them are forward and futures contracts So what I thought was already the bottom in 2013 didn't really hit the bottom till 2000. So I was actually seeing that, not like iron ore prices continue to drop, but earnings continue to drop. And I, as I wrote that post, I said, you know what? I've learned a lesson. I've learned a lesson that with commodity companies never take trailing 12 month numbers as your starting point, because they reflect a very different price than the price you're at today. It's like valuing an oil company in October of 2020 using 2019 numbers. Mm. I'll save you the trouble, every oil company is going to look cheap. Why? Because 2019 oil prices were 20% higher, 40% higher than they were in 2020. So starting with the Vale valuation, I've learned to adjust my commodity company numbers. I actually restate the trailing numbers to reflect the current price. So that's the thing, is we all make mistakes. Now, I'm, I've i made my share. What I try to do when I make a mistake is first be open about saying those words. You know what the words are? I was wrong. Because mm-hmm. too many people make mistakes and then they put, I don't have the luxury because everything I do is pretty much on my blog. I tell people when I buy, they tell me when I'm wrong. It's, it's out there. And I often preempt them by saying I was wrong. You know? So, for, that's the first. The second is try to learn from your mistakes. I know this is, we talk about, I try to learn explicit lessons that I take into my next company like this one. When I valued Uber in 2013, and I've talked about this in the book, I screwed up. I screwed up because I took the existing car service market as my total accessible market. And Bill Gurley and I had this had this debate right after the 2013 valuation, where he pointed out that this could change the car service market that this could become a much bigger market by attracting new users. And he was absolutely right. And I remember two years later, and I wrote about Uber, and I revalued them. I said I was wrong. And I know I was wrong, because here's the tangible evidence. My mother, I thought Uber would attract people like my son and my niece. But my mother was taking Uber, and she is a conservative (laughs) South Indian. And I said, it's changed the market, and I missed that. I was, it's too late to go back and fix my 2013 valuation, but I valued Airbnb. I gave them a total accessible market twice the size of the hotel market because I think they are changing the hospitality business. But that's all you can do. And I'm still in the process, I think, of learning how to incorporate platforms fully into value. I don't think I'd do it that's fully yet. And but I'm learning with each company that's platform-based. I'm learning about the things they can do and perhaps bring it more explicitly into my future valuations. That's really interesting. And uh, a book recommendation? Well, you can Morgan House's book, is a, a, I, I would strongly recommend. If you've not read it, it's definitely a book you should read. Any book by Mike Marbuson. Mike, Mike's a good friend yeah. of mine, he's a he's a, he's somebody who bridges multiple disciplines, he's in psychology and statistics, but especially the book about luck versus skill, because I think every hedge fund manager who thinks he's the king of the universe should read that book because what Mike points out very, very explicitly is how much of the investing game is luck and how little is skill. Yeah. That's so great, I, we, uh, we
0: actually had him on the show
1: I, he'll have, you'll have a great time he's, he's, he's really fun to talk to so
0: Professor, thank you very much for your time it was a pleasure having you here thank you, appreciate it take care